Welcome to The Ocean, Episode 8. I'm Adam Mosley. On this episode, we're talking about God's special soft spot for marginalized people. If you've ever felt like you aren't good enough, or if you've looked down on other people you thought were beneath you, I want to rearrange your thinking today. So stick around. The Ocean Podcast. Life and faith that's welcoming, affirming, and encouraging to others and yourself. Here's our host, Adam Mosley. In late 2012, not long after the U.S. elections, Dr. Craig Fraley, a business professor at the University of Cincinnati, was in an argument with a conservative activist over the concept of equality. Equal opportunity, Dr. Fraley argued, wasn't enough. In order to have true equality in our systems and structures, he insisted that we need to take into consideration equality of outcomes. In an effort to illustrate his point, Dr. Fraley, admittedly not an artist, pulled together an image of a baseball stadium, a stock photo of a crate, clip art of a fence, and some basic geometric shapes. And he brought those together in PowerPoint to create what's gone on to be an iconic viral illustration. You may have seen it, or perhaps one of the dozens of variants of it over the past eight years. In the original image, there are three kids, each trying to see over a wooden fence to watch a baseball game. The kids vary in height, with the tallest on the left, a shorter kid in the middle, and the shortest kid on the far right. Each kid standing on a single wooden crate with the result being that the tallest kid can easily see the game. The top of the fence is about waist high. The kid in the middle can also see over the fence, which is at shoulder level. But the shortest kid, even though he's standing on a crate just like everyone else, is still not tall enough to see over the fence, can't see the baseball game. In a second illustration, Dr. Fraley shows the same scene with the same three kids, but now the tallest kid is no longer standing on a crate. He didn't need one to see over the fence in the first place. And the shortest kid is now standing on two crates, presumably one he got from the tall kid. The result, of course, is that now all three kids can see over the fence. This, Dr. Fraley insisted, was the difference between giving people equal opportunity and giving them a true shot at equal outcomes. The illustration, initially uploaded to Google Plus in its early days, quickly took on a life of its own. And the meme was spread through a variety of social media sites utilized by university professors and business presenters, activists, businesses, and many others. Some altered the image, redrew it, or added words of explanation. But the image, even in its original rudimentary form, was clear. Some people, often through no fault of their own, are at a disadvantage in life. And simply giving everyone equal opportunity is not enough to overcome those disadvantages for everyone. Dr. Fraley, in his illustration, labeled this as the difference between equality defined by conservatives and liberals, equal opportunity versus equal outcomes. Others using the same illustration differentiated between equality and justice or equality and equity. Still, others articulated it in the way that I've often expressed it to my own kids, Fair isn't always equal. Sometimes giving someone a fair shot means giving them preferential treatment, undoing the disadvantage that they have to start with. Recently, I've had a a lot of conversations with people about how this concept plays out systemically 
in our institutions, our government policies, our policing and economics and healthcare and humanitarian efforts. And all of those are conversations that need to be had. But today, I want to bring us down from our 30,000 foot view and look at the issue of equality and equity at a personal level, at a micro level. Because sometimes it's really easy to rage against systemic injustice while personally perpetuating injustice against our neighbors, against the people in closest proximity to us. And so today, I want to look at God's preference for equal outcomes and how we can personally act out the way of God in our everyday lives. But first, let me tell you about Evolving Faith. The folks at Evolving Faith understand the value of having diverse perspectives and voices represented in any community. And they've worked since their inception to not only include a lineup of speakers from diverse backgrounds, but also to solicit advice from a broad range of people as they seek to create a home that's inclusive of a full spectrum of humanity. The result is that at an Evolving Faith event, you'll be challenged in your thinking, confronted in your theology, called out on your hypocrisy, but you'll also be loved unconditionally and, and brought into the family of people whose faith is admittedly evolving, changing and morphing, being rethought. This October, you have a chance to experience the Evolving Faith community without having to travel anywhere at the Evolving Faith Live Virtual Conference. You'll hear from an incredibly diverse lineup of speakers who will help you to see life and spirituality from a variety of perspectives, and they'll give you tools to dig deeper into this vast world of faith. Get all the info at evolvingfaith.com. Just click on conference for all the details and to register and plan on joining us online on October 2nd and 3rd for the Evolving Faith live virtual conference. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is a basic tenet of the faith in a number of traditions, including the three Abrahamic religions, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. In the Christian scriptures, Jesus puts this instruction on par with the commandment to love God. We are, Jesus says, to love God with our whole being and to love our neighbor in the same kind of way. The intimation is that to love one is to love the other. You can't love God without loving your neighbor. And to show love to your neighbor is like showing love directly to God. In fact, Jesus would state this more explicitly at other times. The way we show our love and devotion to God is by loving and being devoted to the people around us. Likewise, our unwillingness to help others, or sometimes even to consider others, is a direct indicator that we don't actually love God. That's why I get so incredulous when I hear Christians, people who claim to love God, advocating for harsher sentencing or more aggressive border patrol or increasingly violent policing. I mean, I don't personally believe in a God who's perched in the sky, ready to throw lightning bolts at us. But if I did, like a lot of these people do, I wouldn't be so eager to do stuff to people that I wouldn't do to Jesus himself. I would be pretty scared to separate God from God's children at the border or to shoot God in the back seven times, or to sentence God to life in prison for a few minor infractions. And make no mistake, that's what's being advocated here. Jesus said, whatever you did to the least of these, you did to me. 
And to those who insist that Jesus would never be symbolized by those who break the law or that Jesus would simply comply with police instructions, I say maybe you should read the Bible again. You see, Jesus and his disciples were regularly getting in trouble for defying the law. He occasionally fled town to avoid arrest, and he got kind of mouthy with both religious and government officials. So yeah, Jesus isn't just embodied in the compliant and the innocent or the person, you know, seeking water or food, which many also vilify, but also in the person trying to negotiate a reduced sentence, the person seeking asylum, and even the person who crossed a man-made border while fleeing violence in their home country. The barometer for our love of God is not and has never been how many times we go to church or how much money we give. It's not what leadership roles we take or how often we attend a home group. The measure of our love for God is how we treat other people, especially people who aren't given a fair shake by society at large. So while we try to dismantle and rebuild all the systems that have been built on racist ideas and practices, we should also realize that there are always going to be a least of these. And it's our job to show up for the people who don't have the advantages that others have. It's our job to step down off of our proverbial wooden crate and help them. It's our job at times to intentionally walk away from our privilege and the advantages that it provides, but instead utilize it to boost the signal for someone else. In order to see true equality and equity, we have to consider outcomes. We also have to consider starting points. There's a video that went viral a couple of years ago, and it continues to resurface. In the video, a youth counselor tells a group of kids that they're going to race for $100. You've probably seen it. He, he puts everyone on the starting line. And then as he backs up toward the finish line, he begins to yell out these instructions. He says, take two steps forward if both of your parents are still married. Take two steps forward if you grew up with a father figure in the home. Take two steps forward if you had access to a private education. And so on. And then after finishing these instructions, the counselor explains that the kids in the front who got to take all of those steps are not there because of anything they've done or anything they've had control over. And yet they'll have a significant head start in this race, just like they do in life. That doesn't mean, he says, that everybody else doesn't have to run the race. It just means that these kids in front are much more likely to win, not because they're the fastest, but because they got a head start. It's a poignant video, and it tells the story that so many disadvantaged and oppressed people already know, but which many people of privilege, especially white privilege, have never considered. The fact that people like me, white, cishet, Christian, male, middle class, have a built-in head start is lost on so many people. Of course, just because we have a head start doesn't mean that we'll win the race. But what it does mean is that we won't lose the race because of factors outside of our control. White privilege, someone said, doesn't mean your life hasn't been hard. It just means the color of your skin isn't one of the things that makes it harder. Now, I've seen that quote floating around for a while. I can't figure out who to attribute it to. So if you know, please email me at adam at theoceanpodcast.com. I want to give people credit for their thoughts. White privilege doesn't mean your life hasn't been hard. It just means the color of your skin 
isn't one of the things that makes it harder. That's the message of this video. But I think this video also shows us how easy it is, even for people who are advocating for social change and affirmative action and justice and equity, how easy it is for us to fall back into old tropes that end up hurting the people that we're trying to help. There's two ways that this jumped out to me in this, in this video. The first was toward the end of the video when the youth counselor is just about to start the race. He wants these kids to understand that whoever wins probably isn't the fastest one on that field. And to make that point, he says this, he says, I guarantee you some of these black dudes would smoke all of you. Man, that rubbed me the wrong way. I guarantee you some of these black dudes would smoke all of you. Black dudes. First, only white people say black dudes. I don't know why that is. It's like a subconscious dehumanization or devaluing of black men. But I hear it all the time, black dudes. More troubling is the assumed link between being black and being fast. Black equals athletic, a stereotype reinforced in the midst of trying to educate about inequality. An effort to perhaps validate the kids in the back who are all or mostly POC immediately turns into a devaluing and, a, and an invalidation of any black kid who can't run fast. It, it, it recalls the slave era when the strongest slaves went for more money and the weaker ones went for less. See, the point he's trying to make about privilege is valid, but the assumption that the black dudes are faster is also part of the problem. The second problematic thing that jumped out to me about this video is that all of the examples he gives, all of his take two steps forward if statements are really linked back to common white talking points about the failures of the black community and black leadership. Things like broken homes and single mothers and high crime and poverty. None of them are about the systemic issues behind those things. The systemic issues that affect BIPOC communities. He doesn't say, take two steps forward if you've never been harassed by the police. Or take two steps forward if your parents are paying lower mortgage rates than darker skinned people with the same financial situation. He doesn't say, take two steps forward if you or your parents have never been denied an interview for a job because their name sounds too black or too foreign. Take two steps forward if you've never considered how your actions might reflect positively or negatively on your entire race. He, he completely fails to address systemic issues and relies solely on family and community behavior and failure. You see, even well-meaning people can fall into the old ruts of racism. Some of this stuff is so ingrained in us that we don't even recognize it. I'm guilty of this. You probably are. Even the people most affected by racism aren't immune to this. There are a lot of people out there who have internalized these racist ideas and attitudes that have been forced on generations and generations before them to the degree that they see themselves as less than. And racism is only the beginning. There's, there's tribalism and colorism and classism and all sorts of other isms that try to separate people from each other and make some people feel superior and others inferior. What I'm trying to say is all of this can get very complicated. 
privilege exists on a spectrum. When it comes to this stuff, you know, I listen a lot because neither my lived experience nor my studies make me an expert in any of this. But when I sit back and listen, what I hear and see and read is a whole bunch of people trying to figure out where they land on that spectrum. Light-skinned black and brown people understand that they have certain privileges that their darker-skinned brothers and sisters don't have. And yet they also suffer oppression that white people don't. Gay and lesbian people understand that they have more privilege in our current culture than trans people, but less than straight people. Middle-class people have more privilege than lower-income folks, but less than the billionaire class. You see, anywhere you look, no matter who you are or what your situation, there's, there's someone who is more privileged than you and someone who is less privileged. And what that should do, I think, is to help us all be a little more compassionate and have a little bit more patience and grace toward those who lack privilege and those who don't recognize the privilege they do have. Because we're embodying both of those roles. But instead, what seems to have happened to some of us is that it's led us to simultaneously call oppressed people whiners and call ourselves oppressed. Instead of sympathizing with others, we, we center ourselves. And when we center ourselves, the outflow of that is selfishness. Sometimes that looks like pastors putting their face on an anti-racist initiative that stole its name from a black-led activist organization. Sometimes that looks like a white country band suing a black singer for the rights to their less racist band name. And sometimes that looks like you and me cheering for that new white-owned farm-to-table restaurant that moved into where the old black-owned small business used to be. You see, centering myself centers both my gains and my losses, even in the midst of advocating for equality. Think again about Dr. Fraley's illustration. The tall kid could give up his crate and still see over the fence. Nothing lost. The short kid needed two crates to see. But what most of us want to be is the kid in the middle. The kid who doesn't have to sacrifice anything, whose view never changes, who still gets to see over the fence, but can now post on Instagram how happy he is that this short friend is finally able to see the ball game. We're the ones who are quick to talk about how the rich need to sacrifice for the poor because we don't see ourselves as either. Benjamin Franklin, himself a problematic and complex guy, but late in life an outspoken abolitionist, spoke to this when he said, Justice will not be served until those who are unaffected are as outraged as those who are. And honestly, I think we're seeing a little bit of that play out today. And not perfectly, obviously. But I think we're seeing a little bit of that play out today as we see more and more, especially white people, begin to educate themselves and understand some of the things that black and indigenous and people of color have understood for a very long time. Justice will not be served until those who are unaffected are as outraged as those who are. I would add that justice will not be served until those who are unaffected are as educated and motivated and activated as those who are. Jesus, in his most famous sermon, lays out a list of people who will receive divine favor. 
Most translations use the term blessed or blessed. Some say happy. But the Greek word here, when used as a noun, as it is in Matthew chapter 5, denotes divine favor, a privileged status in God's eyes. And who are these people that Jesus says will receive special status from God? Well, Jesus says it's, it's the hopeless, those who grieve or mourn, those who are humble, those who hunger and thirst for what is right, for justice, people who show mercy to others, who have pure hearts, who are peacemakers. What Jesus is saying, in essence, is that God's divine favor is reserved for people who have been beaten down and torn apart, but somehow still have the fortitude to seek justice, love mercy, and walk humbly through this life. You may know some people who fit that description. You may be someone who fits that description. And if you are, hear this. God has something extra for you. It may not come in the form of monetary wealth or political power. It may, but it may not. But Jesus says that for those who have been oppressed, there is divine blessing. He says the kingdom of heaven is yours, that you'll be made glad, that you'll inherit the earth, that you'll see the justice that you seek, that you'll receive the mercy that you give, that you'll see God and be called God's children. And so while so many people claim to be blessed by God because of their privilege, I mean, one famous pastor said the quiet part out loud when he actually relabeled white privilege as white blessing. People are claiming to be blessed by God when they see their privilege. But Jesus says the people God blesses are not the rich and the powerful. In another place, he says that those people have already received their reward in full. In other words, if you think that's what God's blessing is, then fine, that's all you get. He says, no, God's blessing is reserved for people who struggle and who know that there's something more. Like if you know there's more, then God's got more for you. Throughout scripture, we get glimpses of a God who has more grace and compassion and mercy for underprivileged people than God has for powerful and wealthy people. And that, that may not seem fair, but fair isn't always equal. And if we're going to be a people who are reflective of God's stance on these issues, if we're going to love people in the way that God loves them, then we have to figure out how to prefer the disenfranchised, to give more of ourselves to those who can't offer us worldly wealth or power in return, to seek justice with those who hunger and thirst for it, to love mercy and learn from the merciful, and to walk humbly side by side with those who will inherit the earth. So what does that look like practically? For some of us, it means recognizing that we're that super tall kid who doesn't need a wooden crate to see over the fence. I mean, it, it, means, it means giving up that which we don't need, offering up our excess, our money, time, possessions, energy, connections, in order to help those who have none of those things. It means people with a platform sometimes need to step aside and invite others to take over that platform, not just amplifying other voices or advocating for them, but actually ceding control of their platform or their image and entrusting it even temporarily to someone who hasn't had the kind of doors open for them that you have offering up our excess for others. 
we are the kid in the middle. If not for a few lucky breaks, or if not for our privilege or our connections or our money, we wouldn't be able to see over the fence. And for those of us in that position, instead of waiting for the tall kid to give up his crate, sometimes we have to be willing to make the sacrifice that we're asking of others. Sometimes I need to give my crate to someone else, sacrificing my view while also advocating for the change needed to bring true equality. And this can take many forms. It might be volunteering time that you don't really have to spare. It might mean making a donation to a cause you believe in, even though you don't have extra cash to give. You know, I'm currently supporting a handful of folks on Patreon with money that I could really use to pay bills. This is a decision my partner and I made because we wanted to literally put our money where our mouth is. These are important voices that need to be heard. And one way we knew we could help amplify those voices is through financial support. Whatever your situation, let's not be content in thinking that there's nothing we can do. Let's also not be content thinking that we're doing enough. The reality is if you have the freedom to turn this stuff off, to just sort of take a break from social media because this is all too heavy to process and just decide not to think about racism, xenophobia, homophobia, transphobia, misogyny, and other forms of oppression. If you just get to turn it off, then you're operating out of extreme privilege. The people being oppressed, the people being the most deeply affected by the state of our world don't have the option of not thinking about it. When faced with the increased militarism and racist behavior of local police forces, some people can't just ignore it. When faced with proposed legislation that literally bars trans people from using a public restroom, some people don't have the option to simply wish things were different. When faced with growing apathy toward objectification, harassment, and assault of women by men in the ruling class, some people don't have the option of looking the other way. When faced with the prospect of a Supreme Court that is anti-women, anti-gay, anti-trans, anti-immigrant, anti-poor, and anti-black, some people don't have the privilege of simply not thinking about it. It turns out it's pretty hard to tune out that which represents an assault on your very existence. And if you're in that place, I want to be there. I want to be there to uphold you to be a friend, to be an ally. And if you're like me and you find yourself in a place of extreme privilege, it's time to put our thoughts and prayers into real notable action. Are we willing to sacrifice something so that others don't have to sacrifice everything? I mean, that's a really legit question. I mean, I have friends who are angry about the fact that their kid is, quote, sacrificing the college experience because they have to wear masks and not go to crowded parties and bars. Are we not willing to sacrifice drunken, poor decision-making for the sake of, you know, BIPOC people who are disproportionately affected by COVID or for immunocompromised people, or for your grandparents for crying out loud? Is, is Rush Week really more important than your elderly black neighbor? Is that the value you're willing to let others die for? 
What about your vote? If you believe that voting one way means more money in your bank account or your stock portfolio, but voting another way means that people who are poorer than you will get more assistance, will you vote in your own interests? Or will you take seriously the words of Jesus when he says, whatever you do for the least of these, you do for me? Or when he says that you can't serve both God and money? How about this one? Are you willing to volunteer to drive people to the polls or to get people registered to vote regardless of who they're voting for because you know that underprivileged people have the same right to vote that you do and that their vote not only counts the same as yours, but is as important, perhaps more important than yours? Are you willing to do something, anything, I know some people are unwilling to give up gendered bathrooms for the sake of others. You can always point the finger at someone less willing to sacrifice and care for other people, but this isn't about them. I'm talking about you and me. What can you do today, this week, this month to offer an extra boost to someone who needs it? What can you do to tear down some of the assumptions that seem to be hardwired into your brain about other groups of people? What can you sacrifice so that someone else can get a peek over that fence? I can't answer those questions for you. Only you can do that. What I can tell you is that life gets richer when you invite a diverse group of people into it. Helping others so often has a payoff for you too. That's not the reason that we do it, but it's a nice bonus. Life lived with people from different backgrounds, perspectives, and lived experiences is good for everybody. Sharing a view of the ball game with the kid short and tall is not only what friendship is about, it's what humanity is about. Helping others reach the outcomes we desire for ourselves is, in the end, fair. Even if it's not always equal. I'm Adam Mosley, and that's all I've got. The Ocean Podcast is produced and written by me, Adam Mosley, and recorded in Athens, Georgia. The theme music was composed by Irina Kakiani, and the opening voiceover is by Rachel West. This podcast is copyright 2020 by Adam Mosley. For reproduction, interviews, or bookings, email request at theoceanpodcast.com.